Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Wednesday, July 27th, 2022. Thank you for joining me. The first story, the top headline at Antiwar.com, the Ukrainian government is asking the U.S. to provide them with a lend-lease program to import natural gas from the U.S., so the idea here is, is that it would be similar to the World War II era Lend-Lease program, which the U.S. revived this year to help facilitate military aid to Ukraine. So under this program during World War II, um, the U.S. provided the Soviet Union, Britain, France, and other allies with weapons and other military and other types of aid without requiring a payment up front. The idea was they would collect the payment down the line. Um, so we saw this revived through legislation that Biden signed and it was revived to help give Ukraine more military aid. Now, I don't think it's actually been used yet because they've been passing these massive aid bills for Ukraine so easily. It doesn't seem like they need, uh, to use this Lend-Lease thing anyway. But now what Ukraine is asking is for the U.S. to ship them gas and expect payment, you know, year in a few years. So this is uh, Ukraine's Prime Minister Denis Denis Shmyhal said on Tuesday that the Ukrainian cabinet agreed to ask the U.S. Uh, for this lend-lease program for gas. And according to Foreign Policy, this is a report in Foreign Policy earlier this month. One of the proposals that has been floated by Ukrainian officials would be for the U.S. to provide Ukraine with 6 billion cubic meters of liquefied natural gas, LNG, without collecting payment for two years. The U.S. would deliver the LNG to terminals in Europe where it will be shipped to Ukraine via pipeline. So this is estimated to be about $8 billion worth of gas that they're asking for. And uh, the CEO of Navtogaz, which is the Ukrainian state oil and gas company, um, was in Washington earlier this month and discussed this idea with officials. Uh, he said, quote, they were surprised to hear such an idea, but it was well received. So $8 billion, I mean, is an extraordinary amount of money, but considering how much the U.S. has been sending Ukraine already, it's not really outside of the realm of possibilities that the Biden administration, that the U that Congress would agree to this. Um so far, the U.S. has authorized $54 billion to spend on the war in Ukraine, and that's more than half of which is military aid and is going to the Pentagon. Um, but that funding is, is, is supposed to last until September 30th, which is the end of the fiscal year for the federal government. So after that, um, they're, gonna, they're expecting to pass another massive aid package. So we can expect more billions to be spent. Um, which they're probably going to start working on that next one soon, considering it's almost August. And I wonder if we're going to see more dissent in Congress on on the next, you know, tens of billions of dollars that they're going to try to send to Ukraine. Um, it doesn't seem like it. It still seems like the consensus is to just keep sending all this money. Um, but anyway, uh, so the next one here, this is another gas story. We've had a lot of these lately. Um, the most EU member states on Tuesday agreed on a plan to reduce natural gas consumption by 15% to prepare for the coming winter and potential further cuts of Russian gas supplies. So we had we saw the EU, the Europe, 
the European Commission put forward this plan, this gas rationing plan to reduce consumption by 15%, which is a lot. And when they initially put it forward, Spain, Portugal, and France rejected it. They said, how can we have to do this when we don't rely on Russian gas as much as, say, Germany and other countries in Eastern Europe? In Spain and Portugal in particular, they're barely linked to the rest of Europe, their gas infrastructure. So even if they ration gas, they can't send it to other countries what they're saving. Um, so this plan that they agreed to, it was a draft law that they passed, would allow exemptions for countries in Europe that aren't as linked to the, the rest of the EU members and that don't rely on Russian gas as much. And only one member voted against this uh, plan, which was Hungary, which is not a surprise. They've been going against the EU on a lot of the this Russia stuff, and they are very reliant on Russian gas. And the IMF predicts Hungary would take the worst economic hit if they were totally cut off by Russia. But it doesn't seem like Hungary is going get, to get cut off by Russia. Uh, last week, their foreign minister went to Moscow to discuss a major purchase. They're, they're looking to buy 700 million cubic meters of Russian gas to prepare for the winter. Um, but the EU is worried that most members are going to get cut off as we've seen Russia reduce supply to the Nord Stream 1 pipeline that connects Russia and Germany. Um, and, you know, it would be obvious retaliation for the Western sanctions campaign. There are also other reasons why the sanctions have backfired. There's a turbine that was part of the pipeline that was being repaired in Canada. Couldn't be shipped back because of Western sanctions. It's been shipped back. It's in Germany. Russia's still saying there's some problems with it. Um, and Russia has also cut off EU members that refuse to pay for gas in rubles because after the uh, US and EU and the UK and Canada and all these countries hit Russia with sanctions, uh, Russia required payment in rubles for Two reasons, really. Um, one is to, was to shield the ruble from from taking a hit further, and now we've seen the ruble has been the best performing currency of the year. And the other reason was because U.S. and EU sanctions specifically targeted Russia's use of the dollar and euro, and they seized all their offshore foreign reserves. They they froze them, and they've they haven't been able to pay their foreign debt. So Russia also defaulted on their debt, but it wasn't a real default because they have the money. It's really just Russia's creditors that kind of uh, getting the short end of the stick there, it seems like. Um, so the next one, this is from Unheard, which is a, it's an outlet I'm not too familiar with, but they had this article about how the Ukrainian government issued a blacklist of so-called Russian propagandists. And it included many American, uh, you know, foreign policy experts and really people that are just arguing against U.S. intervention. They get labeled um, Russian propagandists by Ukraine. And we haven't just seen this from Ukraine. We see this all over, you know, Western mainstream media. People are always being accused of, you know, repeating Putin's talking points because they don't want to uh, fund a proxy war on Russia's border and risk nuclear war over Ukraine, over who controls eastern Ukraine. Um, included on the list were two antiwar.com regular columnists, uh, Ray McGovern and Doug Bandow, um, which was interesting to see. Uh, they, they link to the actual list in here that's on the uh, Ukrainian government website, and you can scroll through and see all the people that they listed. 
Um, Ray McGovern, there he is. <laughs> they also listed Glenn Greenwald, Tulsi Gabbard, John Mearsheimer, uh, who have all, you know, uh, there's quotes from them in this article rebuking this whole idea that they're Russian propagandists. Uh, but it's interesting read, and it's interesting to scroll through the uh, the list. Um, and it seems kind of like a random list. There, there's some people on there that have that support the idea of of sending weapons to Ukraine, of supporting Ukraine, um, that were also included. Edward Lutwak, he he says that he's uh, been lobbying uh, defense ministers of NATO countries to send more weapons to Ukraine, and he was still put on the list. So it doesn't really make much sense. Um, okay, so the next one here, this is, we're getting back into Pelosi's plans to visit Taiwan. Uh, Republicans come out in support of Pelosi's plans to visit Taiwan. A growing number of Republican China hawks have voiced their support for Pelosi going to make this provocative trip. Um, some of the Republicans that have expressed support include Senators Ben Sass of Nebraska, Tom Cotton, the Ultra Hawk from Arkansas, John Cornyn from Texas. Um, Sass said, quote, Speaker Pelosi should go to Taiwan and President Biden should make it abundantly clear to Chairman Xi that there's not a damn thing the Chinese Communist Party can do about it, end quote. So that's pretty typical of what these guys are all saying. They're saying she's got to go. They can't dictate where Pelosi goes and there's nothing that the, the communists can do about it. Um, so we've also seen this from former Trump administration officials. They've come out and said, yeah, go Pelosi, you go to Taiwan, including former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo. He was also CIA director under Trump, super hawkish towards China. Um, and this is really a continuation of the Trump administration's policies. The Biden administration has picked up on them under trump the u.s started sending high-level officials to the island more frequently more congressional delegations started going it's part of their strategy against china is to use taiwan against china um and there's really no purpose to this trip other than provocation um it's incredibly reckless and we've seen biden say that the military doesn't think it's a good idea there was a board i discussed earlier this week said the Biden administration thinks it could spark a major crisis across the Taiwan Strait. Um, it would be the first time that a House Speaker visits Taiwan since 97 when Newt Gingrich went. And he came out in support of, of Pelosi in this. So we see all these Republicans rallying behind Nancy Pelosi. See the bipartisan support for stoking tensions with um, a nuclear, another nuclear power. But also we're seeing Pelosi's fellow Democrats are in favor of it, including Bob Menendez. He's the Senate senator that chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's pretty influential. And unfortunately, too, we saw uh, Ro Khanna, the House representative from California, who's really good on Yemen and you know the wars in the Middle East overall. But he's turning into a real hawk when it comes to Russia and China. This was what he said on uh, he told Wolf Blitzer on CNN. Quote, we're not going to let the Chinese Communist Party dictate where the Speaker of the House should go. We shouldn't allow them to bluff and dictate to America, the greatest nation in the world, where our Speaker of the House should travel, end quote. And Kana, he also voted to send the $40 billion in aid to Ukraine, which was mostly military aid. He voted to 
really, you know, be involved in that war. Um, so it's really unfortunate to see. I thought he would know better, but I guess not. You know, the, there's so much bipartisan support against China. Um, and this is really just demonstrating kind of the sad state of affairs in this area. It's really bleak. I mean, there's not really anybody dissenting against this this view that we have to go, you know, stand up to China for Taiwan. And I've been covering this a lot, so I'll just say quick, you know, the reason why China views this as such a provocation is because Pelosi, she's a high-level official in the U.S. government. It signals to Beijing that Washington is not following the one China policy where they only recognize Beijing as China and they don't recognize Taiwan as a country. It's a territory. Uh, it's a Chinese territory under this this policy. Uh, that's what uh, the U.S. follows. You know, there's an embassy in in Taiwan. It's not a real U.S. embassy. It's a de facto embassy or that's. Um, where there's former U.S. officials that work there. Nobody that's in the current government works there. So it's all informal ties with Taiwan. But when you see stuff like this, and Pelosi, really, you know, she is, if something happens to the president and vice president, she would be the president. If, say, Biden and Harris, if they died or something else happened to them where they couldn't hold office, She's third in line, and that's how China's looking at it. We have a quote here from the Chinese Defense Ministry that said, uh, quote, as the number three leader of the U.S. administration, if Pelosi insists on coming to Taiwan, it will inevitably cause extremely serious damage to ties between the Chinese and U.S. governments, as well as the two militaries, leading to further escalation of tensions in the Taiwan Strait, end quote. And Chinese military analysts told the South China Morning Post that the trip they believe the trip risks direct conflict between the U.S. and Chinese militaries. They really think China is going to respond to this in a way that it hasn't uh, recently, at least. Um, and they said that it will be different from when Gingrich made the trip in 1997 because China's military is, is they've built up their military and their navy a lot more. So, yeah, again, just seems like a provocation for the sake of provocation. And it doesn't seem like she's going to cancel her trip and the Biden administration is acting like they can't stop her. Even though I think if Biden really wanted to, he could get on the phone and ask her not to go because this is such a serious thing we're dealing with here. Um, this next one, this is just a quick little write up that I did. Um, the white house says the upcoming Biden, she call is expected to cover Taiwan and Ukraine. So president Biden and Chinese president Xi Jinping are expected to speak on the phone later this week and the white house said that they're going to discuss taiwan and ukraine i just wanted people to know that they're supposed to hold talks and this comes amid these really heightened tensions uh it'll be the fifth time that they speak since biden came into office and then um we put up the oh this next one this is the solomon islands which the u.s really cares about now <laughs> so the u.s is sending a delegation to the solomon islands next week that will be led by Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman. So the Solomon Islands are a Pacific Island nation. And they recently signed a security pact with China that has upset the U.S. and Australia, which they call the Solomon Islands their backyard. It's about, I believe, 800 miles north of Australia, these islands. Um, so under this deal, it's really like a law enforcement cooperation thing. They say that Chinese can send police to the islands. But 
you know, Australia and the U.S. have keep saying that this deal is going to lead to China establishing a military base on the Solomon Islands, which they are rejecting. Solomon Islands Prime Minister has said repeatedly that that they're not going to that's not going to happen. But now we're seeing this kind of increased U.S. engagement in the Pacific, and it's part of their strategy against China. They released their Indo-Pacific strategy earlier this year. The Biden administration released this strategy that said we need to increase U.S. military and diplomatic presence in the Pacific, in Southeast Asia, um, because you know of China, which is the the new uh, boogeyman kind of to to justify all this expansion. Um, they're going to reopen the U.S. embassy in the Solomon Islands, which was closed. In 1993, so the U.S. hasn't had an embassy here since 93, and they're going to reopen it. They're going to reopen other embassies, open more embassies just in the region, more aid. Uh, so we're just going to see the U.S. more involved. And it's funny because uh, the U.S. has given so much criticism about this deal with China that Solomon Islands signed. And it was around the same time when the war for Ukraine first started, they they kept saying, oh, this war is about a country's right to choose its alignment because leading up to the war, Russia Russia's main demand was that they wanted the U.S. not uh, to guarantee that Ukraine won't ever join NATO. And they refused and said that, uh, you know, every country has its right to choose their alliances and who they want to uh, have close ties with, really. And then now you see the Solomon Island signs this deal with China and they get all this, uh, they get all this concern from the U S and its allies. Um, so the next one here, so this is, uh, Russia fired on Israeli jets back in May. There was reports. So Israel is always bombing Syria, which is an ally of Russia. And Russia has never been happy about it and has warned and has warned Israel against it. So there was reports back in May that said Russia fired S-300 missiles at Israeli jets that were attacking Syria, um, and they weren't confirmed until uh, on Tuesday, Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, uh, confirmed that it happened, that the Israeli jets were fired at by the Russians. Um, doesn't look like any were hit. He described the incident as a one-off. looked like he was trying to downplay it. Um, but... It's significant, you know, it's the first time we know that Russia's fired on Israel. Uh, it shows they might be getting fed up with these strikes, which happen about at a at a weekly rate. Israel bombs Syria about once a week. They don't do it every week, but I would I would say it's about weekly that we see these uh these airstrikes. So then the uh, last news story at the top here, this is from Jason Ditz. Benny Gantz again, he said that Israel can seriously harm and delay Iran's nuclear program. So this is just more bluster from Israel. They have been, they're constantly threatening to attack Iran and saying that they want to, the only way to stop them from getting a nuclear bomb is to destroy their nuclear program. And now he's saying that uh, Israel is capable of it um, because really Israel's issue is that they have to f fly bombers from Israel to Iran and they, they would have to refuel and they don't have planes that can the proper planes to refuel, refuel the bombers in midair. So it would have to stop in probably a Gulf country, possibly the UAE or Bahrain who they have normalized with now to refuel. Um, 
so and they also they don't have the bunker they need real bunker busting bombs to get to iran's nuclear facilities that are have been built underground uh and they've been built underground in response to israel israeli covert attacks and the threat of them being bombed by israel or the u.s and israel also doesn't have the bombs that they really need to destroy these underground facilities but we all we just see this bluster all the time from Israel, and this comes as talks between the U.S. and Iran are stalled to revive the nuclear deal. Which, if the U.S. rejoined the deal, it would put Iran's nuclear program um, under the very strict limits, and it would make them subject to the most intrusive inspections in the world. But Israel is still opposed to the deal, which shows to me that they're not really concerned about their nuclear weapons program, it seems it's just a way to keep, um, you know, keep the U S hostile towards, towards Iran. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it for the news for today. Uh, we have a lot of good view viewpoints as always. We have one from Doug Bandow, our, uh, Russian propagandist as Ukraine likes to call him. Um, we have a good, uh, spotlight here from Patrick McFarlane, our friend at the libertarian Institute about Taiwan and the U.S. policies towards Taiwan, strategic ambiguity, as they call it, is the policy that the U.S. won't say if they will intervene, if China attacks or not. Uh, we There's a lot of hawks that want to change it to strategic clarity, as they call it. They want to commit to going to war with China if they attack Taiwan, which would be a very dangerous thing. Um, and he lays out a lot of important details and facts about um, the the last few decades of U.S.-China relations around Taiwan. Um, so that's it for today. I hope that was that was informative for everybody. I appreciate all of the listeners and the feedback and everything. And you can contact the show, news at antiwar.com. And if you want to support the show, donate to antiwar.com. You can do that at antiwar.com slash donate. So that's it for today. I will see you guys tomorrow with more news 